From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Two Buck Chuck. Love it or hate it, imbibed or abstained, you probably at least know about the infamous bottle of wine. Formerly known as Charles Shaw and sold exclusively at Trader Joe's, the wine generated quite the buzz pun intended. The man behind the label, Fred Franzia, championed the notion that wine need not cost more than $10 a bottle, a philosophy that attracted some vocal critics. He passed away last month, and writer Esther Mobley joins us to discuss his life and legacy. Hi, Esther. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Fred Franzia didn't just happen upon wine. Tell us a little bit about where he was raised and and what his roots are in the industry. Fred was born into what we might call the first family of California wine, the Gallows. So his uncle by marriage was Ernest Gallo, one of the founders of E&J Gallo Winery, which is the country's largest wine company. He himself was born in Modesto, where Gallo is also based He grew up in the Central Valley, and um, his own grandparents had started a wine company, which Fred's parents then took over, and that was the Franzia Brothers Winery. In whose hands did the Franzia Company end up? So in 1973, the Franzia family sold their eponymous uh, winery to Coca-Cola, and uh, it's since changed hands a couple of times, but that's what we now know of as the Franzia wine brand, which um, familiarly comes in a bag-and-box format. Um, So the Franzia family hasn't actually been connected with that wine brand since 1973. And the same year that Fred Franzia's parents sold uh, the business to Coca-Cola, he had been working for the family winery after uh, graduating from Santa Clara University. And um, reportedly, he was a little bit angry about the sale. And so he went out on his own with his brother and his cousin. And they started that same year a new wine company called Bronco Wine Company. And that was the beginning of Fred's own empire. What reputation did Charles Shaw wine have before Franzia acquired the label? And, and under what circumstances did Franzia purchase the label? Right. So so Fred Franzia did not start the Charles Shaw brand. That was started by a man named Charles Shaw. <laughs> um, he initially had nothing to do with Franzia or with uh, Bronco Wine Company. So Mr. Shaw himself was a Francophile. He loved the wines of Burgundy and specifically of Beaujolais. And he bought a winery in Napa and began producing Gamay, which is the grape variety uh, grown in Beaujolais, starting in the late 70s. It's hard to say what the reputation of Charles Shaw wine was in that era. I don't think it was very well known. I've read that um, some of his Gamay wines won medals at competitions, but it seems that ultimately the business didn't really work out very well. The Charles Shaw Winery just had a slew of financial problems and it declared bankruptcy. That's when Franzia came in. He was able to swoop in and uh, buy this Napa wine brand for a steal. So according to Wine Spectator, he paid just $25,000 for the brand 
to compare that, we might look at one very high-profile recent winery that sold in Napa, Joseph Phelps, for a reported $725 million. <laughs> so $25,000 was really a pretty good deal. I mean, that's extraordinary. Where did the grapes for Charles Shaw grow before the acquisition and after? As far as I know, before the acquisition, they were coming from an estate vineyard, so a vineyard that Charles Shaw himself owned. But Charles Shaw, under the Bronco ownership, um, has not been an estate wine, meaning it, it doesn't necessarily come from one vineyard that the winery itself also owns. Um, and in fact, where the grapes in any bottle of Charles Shaw come from is is kind of anybody's guess. A large part of, of Franzia and Bronco's business is um, what's known in the wine industry as a negociant. So uh, he buys and sells wine in bulk. So if a winery makes too much wine or wine that it considers subpar, it may sell large quantities of it to other wineries. So Franzia was doing a lot of dealings, buying and selling, but he had such a large business empire that he played in every level. So he did make wine himself, and he was one of the largest holders of vineyard land in California. He once said he owned 40,000 acres himself. So Charles Shaw was largely a bulk wine brand, so a lot of that is why Franzia was able to sell the bottles for so cheap, because he was just kind of moving different pieces around to get liquid into a bottle. Franzi was famously quoted as saying, they're overcharging for water, don't you get it? When asked how his company could sell wine for less than a bottle of water. What was the industry's response to his less expensive wines? Franzia was always controversial within the wine industry, and his death has certainly reignited some of the controversies that uh, he had stoked. A lot of folks who have been reflecting on his legacy in the recent weeks since his death have noticed that he he really did the wine industry a large disservice, some people argue, by making it seem as if anyone charging high prices for wine was by design an elitist snob. Um, which is really not the case. I mean, to make high-quality wine in California is a costly endeavor, and vintners who are trying to do things the right way by paying their workers a living wage, farming organically, there's really just no way most folks can charge $2 a bottle and stay in business. So he always had folks who were a little bit resentful of that and um, who called him out for that. I guess you know, in some ways, it's just the classic populism debate. Are you making excuses for something that's low quality or are you making a product that's accessible and democratic? They're often two sides of the same coin. But possibly what what enraged his critics within the wine industry more than the prices he charged for his wines was the legal battle that Franzia waged over many years to loosen labeling requirements for California wines. Bronco owned a number of wine labels that had the word Napa in their names, like Napa Ridge and Napa Creek. He owned one called Rutherford Vineyards, Rutherford being a town in Napa Valley. But the wines didn't come from Napa. They they came actually from the Central Valley and they just had these names. 
What happened then was in the early aughts, trade groups in Napa were pushing to close certain legal loopholes that had allowed vintners like Franzia to label his Central Valley wines with these Napa names. And so Franzia took that to court. In fact, he tried to take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. And ultimately, he was unsuccessful. And now you cannot make a wine called Napa Ridge and put grapes from some other place in the bottle. So on what side of the aisle do you lean regarding Charles Shaw? Is it a passable wine? Could you describe it for us? It's been a long time since I've tasted uh, two-buck chuck myself. And because of the the way the wine is sourced, this kind of collection of bulk wine, um, my understanding is that there's quite a lot of variation from bottle to bottle. I do think clearly it was a popular wine. A lot of folks loved it for the for the price mostly, but I think it passed. It passed muster. And again, it 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 accomplished what it wanted to do. And I do think a lot about all the folks who maybe wouldn't have been drinking wine at all if there hadn't been a wine like Tubek Chuck available to them at Trader Joe's. You know, maybe they did view wine as elitist and snobby and they would have stuck with beer or cheap spirits. And maybe Charles Shaw did end up serving as a gateway for some of them to discovering more wine, discovering perhaps even better wine. How many bottles of it have been sold? The Franzia family told me they've sold over 1 billion bottles. Oh my goodness. It's a lot. That is a lot. And I mean, when you think about all the the people who, who, that, as you said, that was their entree into the world of wine. I mean, what an impact. It's a huge impact. And there's a lot to say about Franzia, his legacy. He was an extraordinarily outspoken person. He loved to kind of um, poke the bear, so to speak, when it came to saying controversial things. There's a brilliant 2009 New Yorker profile of him where he's just saying things that I'm sure would have given any publicist a heart attack. But the wines reached a much larger audience than uh, most California wines ever do. And there's something to be said for that. And Charles Shaw itself is not $2 everywhere anymore. In some Trader Joe's stores, you'll now see it for three ninety nine. But the nickname endures. <laughs> It'll always be known as Two Buck Chuck. Thank you so much, Esther. Thank you, Evan. What a pleasure it's been to talk to you. Esther Mobley is the wine critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. We've been discussing the life and legacy of Fred Franzia, the man behind Two Buck Chuck. Coming up, when Vishwesh Bhatt moved to Mississippi from his native Gujarat, he didn't intend to cook, but he fell into a unique career, melding the food of his new home with the spices of the one he left behind. His story when Goodfood returns. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. 
Welcome back to Good Food. Balancing where you come from with where you are often defines us. For a chef, the journey is twofold when a personal culinary style is developed in the process. Chef Vishwesh Bhatt is a southern chef, but his journey began in India, where he helped prepare meals with his mother for their large family. These moments, as well as trips to the market with his father, who picked okra pods one at a time, provided the backbone to his kitchen calling. Hi, it's so great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about India. Tell us where you were raised. So I was raised in this uh, town, well, a city, if you will, called Ahmedabad. It is uh, in the western state of Gujarat. For a while, it was known as the Manchester of the East because it had lots of textile mills. Uh, it's uh, also known as the place uh, from where Gandhi started his uh, Quit India movement. So he had his ashram there. That's another sort of uh, a landmark that the city is known for. More recently, it it is in the news because Gautam Adani, who's the now the second richest man in the world, is also from Ahmedabad. So if that gives you, you know, a little bit of an idea of, of what the city is about. It's always been a city of, of commerce. How old were you when you moved to the States? Um, and how long have you been settled in Oxford, Mississippi? So I, I moved to the States uh, right after my 18th birthday. And I've been in Mississippi since 92. You define yourself as the Southern chef. Explain why it was important for you to veer away from traditional Indian cuisine and instead use the American South uh, as a way to interpret through your own lens. I never really veered away from traditional Indian food. I didn't. I don't know how to cook traditional Indian food, right? I mean, I, I know how to cook uh, three, four, maybe five items that I learned from my mother uh, that are very specific. Uh, to our family and to our region. I learned how to cook in the South. I, I, I started working uh, in a Southern kitchen, a very Southern kitchen at, at City Grocery in Oxford. I, you know, I learned under John Currents, who learned from Bill Neal. So I, I come from that sort of tradition of cooks uh, who have always cooked Southern food. I just happened to be someone who had grown up in India and so had some knowledge of spices. And so I could season things a little differently. So, um, one of, for me, when I opened your book, I don't know why, but I was flipping through it, the peanut chapter appeared, and it just grabbed me. So, I would love to explore peanuts. Yes, they're, they're my absolute favorite legume or nut, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that this chapter, these dishes have been made with love. You say that when you hear two chefs discuss the virtues of Virginia peanuts over Georgia peanuts, you're reminded of your father talking with his brothers about peanuts from different places. Yes. So, you know, so I grew up, again, you know, grew up thinking peanuts were Indian, right? I mean, that's, we always had them. They were a staple in our pantry. I mean, they were used in a lot of things. My favorite snack to this day remains, uh, you know, roasted peanuts. When we went to the movies in India, you know, here you buy popcorn, there you would buy uh, roasted peanuts. That is something I grew up with. And so I, you know, have a very deep, almost dangerous love with peanuts. My staff uh, knows that when we have peanuts on the menu, not to leave any anywhere where I can see them because I will stand there and eat literally every one of them. And so, you know... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> that's not it's good. A, it, I mean, it, it's a problem. It's a, it's a serious problem I have. So there was going to be a peanut chapter in the book, but it also is one of those things. Here's something that traveled from one continent to another one, became very much a part of the food culture of that place, but still remains really near and dear to where it originated. But these recipes are just particularly delicious. Let's start with um, the chat. Um, explain what a chat yes. is and how you use the peanuts in it. So in a nutshell, a chat is a little snack, okay? Uh, so you can make chat uh, from almost anything. But the elements you need for chat is some crunch. So you need different textures, right? You need some, you need, it needs to have some crunch, needs to have something sort of soft and mushy, uh, something sharp uh, like an onion or a shallot or something like that. Then it needs to have flavor-wise, it needs to be salty, it needs to be, has to have some heat, needs to have some tang, needs to have a little bit of sweet. So you, so it kind of gets all your taste buds excited and that's the purpose of a chat. And so you use boiled peanuts in your chat. Yeah, I mean, I make chat with a lot of different things, but boiled peanuts, to me, I wanted to take that thing that's very familiar to folks here and then turn it into something flavor-wise that I had grown up with, you know. And, and we didn't have boiled, pe boiled peanut chat at our house. We, we ate boiled peanuts. They were boiled, but they were also, you know, had the, you know, that my mom would boil them with, with ginger and, and some chilies and stuff. So they were spicier than the boiled peanuts we get uh, here. And so I wanted to sort of bring those flavors in. And so the chaat idea came to mind. Then again, so you add uh, a little bit of minced onion, and I've got a little bit of roasted peanuts in there too, just for, for some crunch. You know, serrano chilies, a little diced roma tomatoes, a little bit of cucumber again, because that gives it that bite. So you, you get all that together, and cucumbers and peanuts work really well together. If you haven't tried that combination, you should. And then you season it all, and then there's, of course, a little bit of, you know, uh, citrus in there and tiny bit of... I use honey, but if you wanted to keep it vegan, you can use sorghum or molasses or anything like that or agave nectar, uh, and that would work too. It's like a, sort of this party in your mouth thing that, that's just so much fun. Um, so one of the kind of marquee items on our calendar in the before pandemic times here at Good Food um, was this enormous pie contest, which we're bringing back next year. But so we're a bit pie obsessed here. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so um, another unbelievably gorgeous photograph um, from your peanut section is that pie. It looks so amazing. It kind of looks like a, um, a pecan pie, but instead of pecans floating on the top above a kind of gelatinous, gooey, sugary mixture, it's peanuts. Can you uh, talk about the recipe and who was behind it? Yes, absolutely. So that, that recipe credit goes to Austin Agent. And yes, that is his name, Austin Agent. He was our, our pastry chef for a while. When he first came to us, and he's, he's from a place uh, in Mississippi called Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is in Neshoba County. And uh, one of the things that is common in, in, in rural Mississippi and in the rural South, and I'm sure other places, was this thing called farmer's coke, where if, you, if you're on a tractor in the afternoon or, you know, and you need, you would have a Coca-Cola, which is nice and cold, and then you would have a bag of peanuts and you had to drive and, and change gear. So you would open the peanuts, drink a little bit of 
Coca-Cola, make room and then pour the salty peanuts in the Coke. So this idea came to Austin and he remembered his grandfather having the farmer's Coke when riding the tractor in their yard as a kid. And it's like, okay, so what if I was to try and do like that, you know, that flavor? You think I can make Coke syrup? And I said, yeah, let's try it. And so he did. And, uh, well, you know, the rest is his history. I mean, it's, it's, it's a brilliant freaking recipe. But, yeah, it, it's just one of those things, you know, that, that remind you that sometimes the best food ideas come from the simplest things if you're just observing them. Uh, you know, the things don't need to get fancy. That was Vishwesh Bhatt. He's the James Beard award-winning chef of Snack Bar in Oxford, Mississippi. His new book is I Am From Here. Stories and Recipes from a Southern Chef. We have a recipe for that peanut pie on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. After living with COVID for a year and a half, it became clear that loss of smell and or taste was a common side effect of the virus. So in August of 2021, we reached out to Dr. Nancy Rawson, a scientist at the Monell Institute of Smell in Philadelphia. We talked about the effect these losses had on people's lives and how scientists were running to catch up so they could answer the many questions that people had. We spoke to several folks whose loss went on for a while and seemed to be permanent. It's been a year since that interview, and I was curious about what, if any, progress has been made in helping people regain these key senses. Dr. Nancy Rawson joins me again. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm great. I'm so um, grateful that you were able to join us again to talk about this. Could you remind us what anosmia and parosmia are and how they are different from one another? Sure. Anosmia is the term we use to describe a complete loss of smell. So you have absolutely no ability to detect any odor whatsoever. It doesn't refer to taste. Taste is sweet, salty, sour, bitter, savory. So you can still detect those kinds of uh, sensations, but you can't smell roses or lemons or coffee or chocolate, things like that. Parosmia is a related condition. What happens in parosmia is you start to be able to experience odors, but what you're smelling and what you're experiencing is not the way you remember it. So you might go to smell your coffee and instead it might smell like garbage or something completely unrelated. Or your morning shampoo that always was a very pleasant smell might now smell just very unpleasant. Occasionally, an unpleasant smell, something that you didn't like before, might now smell not so unpleasant. We hear that as well. So this is a case where uh, it's called parosmia, so it's in a, in incorrect aroma experience. And it actually uh, happens quite commonly in people that are recovering their sense of smell following having lost it completely from COVID. And, and is it because what you're actually smelling is one isolated component of a total kind of aromatic profile? Right. So there's still, you know, research is still going on, but... What appears to be happening is that the olfactory system, as it's recovering, it doesn't recover 
equally across all of the nerve pathways that detect these you know, thousands and thousands of different chemicals. So some nerves may be regenerating sooner than others. And in order to get the full impact of, say, a coffee aroma, you need to be able to detect many different chemicals in a particular proportion in the way that the brain interprets that as coffee. But if you're only now able to detect a few of those, maybe one or two of them, uh, when you smell them by themselves, they don't smell anything like what you think the coffee should smell like. We do a demonstration with lavender uh, as an example of this, and we can take five or six of the critical components of a lavender aroma, and if you smell them individually, none of these chemicals smell anything like lavender. But when you combine them in the right proportion, then you recognize it as lavender. So we really need to have the whole system in order for it to work the way we expect it to work. Could you explain how taste is so linked to smell? So as we eat food and we chew food, there is a what's called a retronasal pathway. So when we're chewing, we're releasing chemicals from the food that are uh, chemicals that are that go up into the air and they go into the nose through what's called the retronasal pathway. So through the back of your nose up into, into the olfactory cleft. And these aromas that you're experiencing through this retronasal pathway actually impact us special sets of receptors that are sent to a part of the brain that integrates flavor information, both smell and taste and chemical irritation or texture, all of the other characteristics of food into a flavor perception. And it's this retronasal pathway really that makes flavor, makes all the nuances of flavor beyond sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and savory. So without that component of flavor, we really lose the identity of the food. You can't really tell a lemon from a lime without your sense of smell. And it's hard to tell chocolate from coffee without your sense of smell. Do we know yet what proportion of people with COVID are experiencing long-term loss of smell? So the numbers vary, but 10 to 15% is the general number that seems to be coming out of most of the studies for people that continue to have loss of smell uh, up to, you know, two years or more after their initial uh, experience. And what we also are still studying, but probably another 20 or 30 percent of those who recovered their sense of smell probably haven't recovered uh, to the point where they were prior to COVID. So they, they certainly have recovered the ability to smell, but they might not be as sensitive as they were before COVID. That is extremely alarming. I mean, when you think about that the sense of smell is is a sense that helps us avoid danger and gives us clues as to, you know, what's safe to eat, what's not safe to eat, for example, it's um, it's very disturbing. It is. It's very disturbing. And it's it's really unfortunate because as these individuals age, there's a natural diminishment of our sense of smell with age that is going to be superimposed on this earlier insult 
that our sense of smell took. So they're starting from a lower baseline. And I'm afraid that we're going to be seeing a lot more people with really impaired sensitivity as we go forward. When we spoke before, you talked about looking at the nasal tissue involved with binding smell receptors at a cellular level for communication to the brain. And you said that the virus-infected tissue looked like Swiss cheese, that it was all filled with holes. Does that continue to be the main culprit that you're seeing, or have you found other culprits that create the losses? Yes. So one of the interesting things that came out in the in the past year since we talked last was the discovery, very unexpected, that in addition to the structural integrity of the tissue being affected, the effect of the virus on the supporting cells somehow causes the olfactory nerve cells, the nerve cells that detect odors, to stop making the odor receptor proteins. So they're not producing the proteins that they need to produce to detect odors. And that that helped to understand why people were losing their sense of smell so suddenly. And do we do we have any templates for understanding how to bring those proteins back from another kind of receptor? Uh, so a lot of the research also in the last year has focused on understanding just how to either recover the function of those cells or regenerate, replace those cells with newly generated cells that function properly. And the exciting news is that there is several clinical trials going on right now that are looking at different ways of promoting recovery of this tissue that are based on work that had been done, you know, over many years to to understand the types of cells that are serve as stem cells for those cells and the different types of chemicals, growth factors that trigger the generation of new smell neurons. Some of the early, you know, animal studies have been quite promising. So I'm optimistic that we'll see some positive outcomes in the future. So are we talking about an intervention like a surgical intervention of stem cells or an injection of something rather than just sort of a protocol of training? Right. So we're talking about more pharmacological or surgical types of interventions, whether it is stem cells or application either via injection or via topical application of pharmacological agents that promote regeneration of the tissue. When I think about the sense of smell, I also think about memory. Much as music has the ability to immediately transport us to another time or place, so does the sense of smell. Um, Has any research been done about how smell loss affects memory? That's a really good question. Uh, smell is intimately connected with, with memory, and the neural connections are very close. We do know that a loss of smell is one of the earliest symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, and that changes in the brain related to memory impairment also occur in the olfactory pathway uh, and occur earlier than other parts of the brain. However, whether it goes the other direction is is an interesting, important question. I think that the more kinds of 
sensory information you have to associate with particular events or activities or people, the better your brain is able to remember it. So for instance, if you are meeting someone and they're wearing a particular perfume and they're wearing bright clothing and they have a very distinctive haircut, you're more likely to remember that person's name. So this is just one component of the overall sensory picture that we make. And I think that it is something that does help us to craft these memories and to embed these memories in a more long-term way that, that we can bring them back more easily. Well, this has been just so fascinating. And I thank you so much, Dr. Rawson, for, for coming back and bringing us up to date with what's going on in your world. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Nancy Rawson. She is a scientist at the Monell Institute of Smell in Philadelphia. If you are experiencing a loss of smell and taste from COVID, we have information on our website about STANA, the Smell and Taste Association of North America, where you can find out about the latest research and connect with others who are experiencing the same symptoms. Head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood for details. In a minute... When Grace Young stood in line to meet Julia Child, she was the only child and the only Asian American waiting to meet her. Now she's being honored with the Julia Child Award. Her journey with Julia is next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. The last time I caught up with cookbook author and culinary historian Grace Young, the pandemic was decimating the restaurant industry, with businesses owned by Asian Americans being singled out. Coupled with the violence aimed at the AAPI community and fearing traditions would be lost, Grace was prompted to create Coronavirus Chinatown Stories, highlighting the personal histories of small business owners. Before that conversation, I interviewed Grace nearly a dozen times over the past two decades for her unparalleled scholarship on Chinese food and traditions. Next week, she'll be honored with the Julia Child Award, an award that honors someone who has made a profound difference in the way America cooks, eats, and drinks. Welcome, Grace. Thank you, Evan. So congratulations. How did you first hear the news about the Julia Child Award? I was given, uh, I, I received a phone call, and I was uh, completely astounded. I still am. I, I really have to say it's so well-deserved. You've called yourself a Julia Child fangirl. Could you describe um, your introduction to her and her cooking? So when I was, I think, 10 or 11 years old, I first discovered Julia on television and uh, she was cooking food that I had never, ever seen before in my life. I was completely mesmerized uh, by what she was cooking and by her. Uh, and it became my favorite television show. I think all my other friends were watching Green Acres. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just lived for her show, uh, The French Chef. And in those olden days, you had to send a self-addressed envelope to get the recipe. And I did it every single week. 
And I wish I could remember more details from my childhood, but I don't know how I figured out how to buy the French Chef cookbook, but I had a paperback copy of the French Chef cookbook. And I loved reading the, the newspaper. I lived in San Francisco. My family lived in San Francisco. And so I read the San Francisco Chronicle and one day found out that she was coming to San Francisco and convinced my father that he should take me to the White House department store where she was doing a book signing for Mastering uh, the Art of French Cooking. And Paul Child was with her and I brought my little paperback copy of The French Chef and stood in line with all of these grown-up women. I, I believe I was the only Asian child, the only child and the only Asian in the room besides my father. Um, and so it was quite a moment. And so um, I got to meet Julia and Paul Child. They both signed my book. Wow, that's so extraordinary. And the book has now been given to the Smithsonian. That is fabulous. Yeah. Um, you must have had other encounters with her as an adult person in the food world. What was that like? So after the my first cookbook was published, The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen, which was 1999, uh, there was a Lunar New Year banquet given by the American Institute of Wine and Food, and Joya was invited. Uh, this was in San Francisco, and um, they couldn't decide who should be seated next to Julia, you know, all the different heads of AIWF from all the different states. So they finally decided to put Julia between my mother and me, and my father was there too. So it was a really thrilling meal, and I have a photograph from that evening, also given to the museum, Smithsonian, and um, it was just wonderful to spend an evening with her. How did Julia's style of cooking inspire your approach to teaching home cooks about Cantonese cuisine? Well, in The French Chef, at the start of the book, she says something about how she wanted to take the bugaboo out of French cooking, you know, to make it accessible for her readers. And when I was writing The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen, I kept on thinking, I want to take the bugaboo out of Chinese cooking and demystify it. And so there were a lot of things that I did in Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen that hadn't done, had, been, had not been done before in other Chinese cookbooks. And uh, that was inspired by Julia. How marvelous that it's like this full circle getting this award. So along with this award, you receive a $50,000 grant um, do you know how you're going to use the money yet? Yes. What I want to use the money for is supporting culinary communities in Chinatowns all across the United States. So since the start of the pandemic, Chinatowns have, have suffered. Um, as early as January and February of 2020, uh, Chinatowns in San Francisco, New York, Boston, Chicago, um, were shunned because of misinformation and xenophobia. People were afraid that if they went to Chinatown, they could catch COVID. Many of these businesses have been suffering for two and a half years, not just from the impact of COVID, but also because of anti-Asian hate. 
Here in New York City in March, there's a study that just came out that 75% of Asian seniors in New York City are afraid to leave their homes because of the fear of anti-Asian hate crimes. And that means that mom and pop businesses in Chinatown are suffering from restaurants to grocers, markets, bakeries. And my biggest fear is that we will lose more legacy businesses. In 2020, New York City's Chinatown lost so many great legacy businesses. Right now, San Francisco's Chinatown has 46 shuttered storefronts on Grant Avenue. That's just unimaginable. In my lifetime, I don't think I've seen three. So um, I think it's so important to invest the money back into hopefully the legacy restaurants to feed people in the community who are dealing with food insecurity. And that's my, my hope. But I also hope that everyone will show up to Chinatowns across the United States and AAPI mom and pop businesses and show their support, you know, show up to the restaurants, markets, bakeries. They all need our support more than ever right now. You are a treasure, Grace Young. Thank you. Grace Young is this year's recipient of the Julia Child Award. She will be honored at a special ceremony in Washington, D.C. next week. The last time the White House held a food conference was in 1969 during the Nixon administration. The event is credited with ushering in tremendous progress in federal food and nutrition policy, including expanding food assistance programs and the school lunch program. At the end of last month, the Biden administration held their own conference on hunger, nutrition, and health. Will it be as groundbreaking? NPR's Jimena Bustillo joins us. Hi there. Let's start with the big picture. What is the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health? Yeah, I mean, it really is what it sounds like. This time around, it was a one-day conference, literally, where groups, advocates, lobbyists, lawmakers, folks who work in government agencies within the Biden administration, and even regular people themselves were able to attend a physical event in Washington, D.C., where they discussed solutions to ending hunger. And the Biden administration has the goal of ending hunger by 2030, which is in eight years. So it's a really big goal. And There were a lot of discussions about what needs to be done legislatively with private companies and also individual action to reach those goals. This compares to the Nixon administration where there were some similar goals of ending hunger and ending malnutrition in the United States. Um, That was, I will know, a three-day conference. There was a little bit more time to plan around it, and it was more of a working conference. So people were broken up into committees to workshop ideas and solutions, whereas this conference was less of a working conference, though there was still some of that workshop component. Yes, I was curious about that. I mean, this is such an enormous um, set of of subjects that come mm-hmm. together to create this massively important thing for us, for our country. Was this more just putting kind of a spin on something that 
is sort of a hot button item now? Or do you think there will be takeaways that actually end up in legislation from this conference? That's a really good question. So the idea of a hunger conference is not necessarily new. Folks like Jim McGovern, a representative who's been really pushing for a hunger conference for years, even dating back to the Obama administration, um, will tell you that this is long overdue, right? As you said earlier, 50 years since the last one. Now, the Biden administration did put out a 44-page document of a strategy, you know, that included proposals for what bills Congress Congress can pass, um, but what agencies can do themselves um, and also what individual companies can can also sort of do. And so it really is a little bit of a long game here, right? So 44 pages, that is dozens and dozens of recommendations and ideas. And out of the last conference, we saw that the many recommendations were fulfilled within the first two years and even more so after. So no one's expecting immediate change. I think some folks maybe were hoping that some sort of executive order or action would be announced during the conference, and and it wasn't. But that also wasn't a complete blow. You know, folks are aware that it's going to take honestly, years before we really see anything come to fruition. Uh, One of the vehicles in which we could see change, uh, at least on the congressional side, is through the 2023 Farm Bill. But that's the bill that houses a lot of nutrition programs, food access programs, um, local and regional food, you know, assistance. So that's one vehicle for it. But there there are other vehicles as well. And so it just kind of depends on on what Congress decides to do. I mean, I will note that a lot of the recommendations put forward by the Biden administration are a little partisan. They do lean more Democrat, you know, things like making the child tax credit um, as high as it is and bringing it back and making it permanent, raising the federal minimum wage, all his efforts to address root causes of poverty, but also expanding SNAP and nutritional assistance programs, which big GOP leaders have been strong, staunchly against for forever. And so that's one thing to also keep in mind you know, especially with midterms coming up, is what the makeup of Congress looks like will really determine how much of these issues are are talked about and how much hope they're given. Is there anything the administration can accomplish um, from this 44-page agenda (laughs) without Congress? Definitely. There are quite a couple individual actions that agencies can take. These range in, in what they are. So there are some that are just adding food nutrition specialists to the staffs of the Bureau of Indian Affairs or the staffs of Interior to focus on nutrition and food access amongst Native American communities. This ranges to the FDA wanting to look at creating new rules for how nutrition labels are placed on packages and how food companies are able to use the word healthy to promote their products. Those are rules that will probably take a really long time to implement but that is something that they can do. Um, USDA, the agriculture department that manages supplemental nutrition assistance programs, they have some capability to expand what schools are able to provide free meals to all of their students, which is a really big deal. The Biden administration eventually, you know, says that they want free school meals for all, but they're starting with an additional 9 million children uh, within the next 10 years. And so it's a little bit of a blurred line how much 
uh, how many of those nine chil- nine million children USDA can, within their own authority, spread spread their programs and reach. Eventually, they will need congressional approval to expand the programs, but they do have some flexibility to expand the program within a limited scope. So there are things that agencies can do uh, within themselves, within their departments, and to target the populations that they serve. You've been covering food politics for some time, previous at, previously at Politico and now for NPR. Which of these stories to come out of the conference are you going to be following most? I mean, coming out of this conference, it is a little tough because, as I mentioned, it is a long game. So just because we don't see legislation being introduced immediately or movement from an agency immediately doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's a failure. However, you know, with the Farm Bill coming up, discussions of SNAP, SNAP expansion, I think will be really interesting to keep an eye on. Um, school meals, you know, it continues to be a story that keeps coming up because of the changes to the pandemic rules that just went into effect. And and now you have five states that are, including California, right? Like big state that you're in that's providing free school meals for all, you know, at a time when there suddenly was a cliff to to this benefit nationwide. And I think that is definitely something to continue keeping an eye out for how that functions in the five states where this is being done on their own volition. But I, I mean, there there are countless stories, whether it's food access stories, whether it's nutrition uh, and health stories, lessons learned from the pandemic, whether or not they've been learned, whether or not they haven't that I think are, are very fascinating. So there are a lot of things that I, I definitely want to keep track of and and keep tabs on um, more than I probably have time for. But my inbox is always open for people that want to talk. Jimena Bustillo is a reporter for NPR where she covers politics out of the White House and Congress. We've been talking about last month's White House Food Conference. The Market Report is up next. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head to the farmer's market for our weekly check-in with Jillian Ferguson, who's on the ground in Santa Monica. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. One of the magical things about the Santa Monica Farmer's Market that the radio does not convey is its proximity to the ocean. And I mentioned it today because my guest this morning, Spencer Bazaar, has literally arrived with salt water in his hair this morning to shop. Spencer and his wife, Sabrina, are behind the Silver Lake restaurant, Izette, and he's here this morning to shop and swim. Hi, Spencer. Hey, how's it going? Good. So tell us a little bit about Izette. What is the philosophy of cooking there? We wanted to make a neighborhood joint um, where anybody in the neighborhood can walk over, get a glass of wine, have a nice plate of food, um, things that aren't very pretentious, approachable. We cook everything out of a charcoal oven. Um, we do a lot of shopping at farmer's markets. So everything is very seasonally driven and most of the food influence is based around cooking out of that charcoal oven. All right. So we're here at the market this morning. I know you shop at Hollywood on Sundays, too. What is going to end up in the charcoal oven from the market this week? I just picked up some really nice uh, Romanesco squash from Coleman Farms. I'm really into that right now. It's um, We grill it whole and we don't cut it. So all the moisture stays within the squash. Um, and then we put it on top of a Romesco sauce that we make with um, Weiser Farm sweet peppers and hazelnuts 
Um, and those peppers are also like hot smoked and grilled in the charcoal oven as well. So they get a nice smokiness, pepperiness, and a little bit of heat uh, from the Roman, uh, from the Romesco. And the Romanesco is nice and juicy on top of it. It's a mouthful, I know. It is a tongue twister, Romesco on Romanesco. And when I think of Romanesco, my mind goes to that Italian sort of light green cauliflower. But you're actually talking about a summer squash, right? Yeah, it's, it's like a zucchini. It's a little bit sweeter and a little bit nuttier. Um, and it's the right size for us. And size is really comes into play a lot with the charcoal oven just because things tend to either get burnt very quickly and raw in the middle or they just overcook. So it's kind of a battle to figure out nice sized vegetables with good amount of water inside of them so you just don't obliterate them in a 600 degree charcoal oven. Sure. And what's the trick for these particular squash? Do you, where do you place them on the coals? Uh, I mean, they're on the bottom rack, so they're right on the coals. Um, and because they're so ju juicy and hold so much water, we can just kind of let them ride and get like a really nice char all, all along the outside of them without denaturing or drying out the interior. And they also don't come out as bitter as you would think from the hard char on them. Mm. I noticed on the table at Coleman that they actually have the zucchini blossoms attached. Do you use those as well? Uh, we just throw them all in the oven and then whatever comes out, if it's still <laughs> attached, it, it, uh, it comes out. Okay. All right. And give us a quick walkthrough of the Romesco sauce that you mentioned. Uh, so we marinate the peppers and a little bit of olive oil and salt. And then um, as the oven starts to heat up, I like to load it full of uh, hardwood and not just charcoal. So then you get a lot of smoke as well as heat, blister the peppers. Then we slow cook those peppers with garlic and onions and whatever else is in the region at that time. Very slow and low in olive oil. And then once they're nice and soft, pull them out of the oil, blend them or food process them with toasted hazelnuts, some vinegar, and a little smoked paprika, and that's it. I bet that oil that's left over is so delicious, too. Yeah, it ends up being like the mother oil where it just kind of makes its way into like four different dishes. You know, it's just kind of all ubiquitous around the kitchen. Yeah, well, this all sounds great. What nights are you open for dinner? Uh, we are open seven nights a week. We open at five, and we do happy hour from five to seven. Great. Well, I can't wait to be there. Thank you, Spencer. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Spencer Bazaire. He and his wife, Sabrina, are the team behind Azette in Silver Lake. Romeo Coleman is the farmer that Chef Spencer is buying those Romanesco squash from. And Romeo, it's that crazy time of year. We always seem to talk when you're in transition from one season to the next. But we're at the market right now where there's summer squash at the market and there's winter squash at the market. It's just a, a bizarre time of year to be shopping here in Santa Monica. Tell us a little bit about this squash in particular, the Romanesco that Spencer mentioned. Um, that's a nice variety from Italy that I buy from a company that brings it from Italy, the seed. And it has a really good nutty flavor and just has the best flavor of summer squash that I've had. And it's beautiful too. It's variegated. It has almost like a stripe down it, right? Yes. It has a couple little stripes sometimes, sometimes a little bit of ribbing on the top. It's beautiful squash. Yes, it looks like it belongs in a still life. And I noticed that on the table, you, you actually sell them with the flowers attached. Yes, we do, because this variety kind of keeps hold of its flowers, so the younger ones still have their flowers, which can be used, as you know. And how much longer are you going to have summer squash? This variety will have for maybe two, three weeks more, hopefully holding on to it. 
There's a few other summery items on the table left. I just got handed a delicious green bean that seems pretty unique. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's the new variety I started uh, or got into this year. And it produces very well, has a very crisp taste to it, texture to it. And um, yeah, it holds up well. And it's just absolutely delicious. Does it have a name or is it still in trial? Uh, it has a name, yeah, for sure, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> this is the proprietary information of the farmer. Okay, so um, as we get out of the green beans, the squash, what do we have to look forward to as the fall moves forward? Um, coming up in the, in the next month, we have, we'll have our sunchokes coming out, nice and fresh sunchokes. And then around November, end of November, Thanksgiving time, we should have a lot of chicories coming in season. Mm, which you are well known for, those chicories. Yeah, I'm, I'm, thankfully I'm getting better and better every year at it. So it's, uh, I'm hoping them to develop, develop some color and get a little cold snap and um, just get a little size too. Well, we look forward to all of it. Thank you so much, Romeo. Thank you. That was Romeo Coleman. He is at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market every single week with a beautiful table full of greens. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Elena Shatkin, Laryl Garcia, Kenny Ng, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, Amy Tan, Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. Don't forget that next weekend is the grand finale of Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. We'll be at Smorgasburg next Sunday, October 16th, to announce the winner. Go to kcrw.com slash tortilla for all of the details. And I will be back right here in your ears next week with a very special episode of Good Food, all about masa. 